When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey there, welcome to The Tins. I'm your host, Scott Feldman, and it's time for another foray into the world of aquariums from a slightly different perspective. I know, I know, it seems like I bring up variations of the same subject like a hundred times in this blog and this podcast. However, I think there's a good reason to do so. I mean, many of the ideas that we've postulated and played with have not only worked, they've led to other tangential discoveries and practices and evolutions and occasionally a breakthrough or two. So for the umpteen thousandth time, Let's talk more about, wait for it, substrates. Yeah, the bottom of your tank. Or more precisely, the stuff that comprises it. I'm obsessed with this shit, you know that. So, you know, hey, here's a secret. Literally, if I didn't start Tannin, I probably would have created a company that curates and sells substrate materials only. Like, that's it. So, to scratch this itch that never went away, I'm doing the next best thing in 2020. We're going to be increasing the diversity of our substrate offerings because I love this stuff and I think you will too. Stuff that you won't find elsewhere, destined for applications, and no one else would really ever love more than you guys anyway. So stay tuned. Anyways, enough of the crass commercialism and back to the topic at hand. Now, for many of us, the literal foundation of our aquariums has been and still is sand or gravels. It's been that way for most of the century for modern aquarium keeping. And sure, there's been variations in grades, sand types and origins and colors and such, but it's basically the same stuff we've had forever. And, you know, now there's planted tank substrates, clays and other materials. And that's good. But sands and gravels are pretty much the, the standard, and they're a good simulation of many of the materials found in natural habitats. However, I think we have to accept that many aquatic habitats aren't simply sand and gravel, our sort of idealized, sanitized version of what the bottom of a river or a stream should be. When you consider natural waters and the impact of substrate, the story gets even more interesting. In rivers like the Amazon, the Rio Jingo, or the Orinoco, you'll find materials that originate in the mountains, up in the Andes and the highlands, and they gradually work their way downstream, influencing the aquatic environment chemically, phys- you know, physically, and geograph- uh, geologically, not to mention um, you know, the occurrences of these, these uh, materials where, they, where they're found, too. The materials are influenced by the currents, the water movement, and they tend to sort themselves out and reorganize over time. So to simulate you know, this dynamic, it pays to do a little research on the specific environment that you're trying to replicate. Not just the look of it, mind you, but also like how it formed. I think that's really something interesting. And some parts of the Amazon, for example, are replete with larger you know, particles of material and even rocks, something that we don't think about, but it's almost always covering a fine sand. And studies have shown that particle sizes tend to decrease the further downstream from the source they're found, which kind of makes sense. Stuff moves down, washes down, gets eroded, broken up. Large rivers like the Amazon have these beds <clears throat> excuse me, of shifting sands and they're slowly transporting with the currents. And typically, <clears throat> one more time, I'm always clearing my throat, aren't I? <laughs> that's, that's just me. The larger the item, like a pebble, a rock, or a boulder, the longer it tends to stay in one place. And this makes sense, right? So in a more powerful flow, you're likely to find larger sized materials. A history lesson, yeah, where else in the aquarium world are you going to get a history of substrate, right? Well, the first recorded observation of bed material of the Amazon River 
was made in 1843 by Lieutenant William Lewis Herndon of the U.S. Navy when he traveled that river from its headwaters to its mouth. And he was sounding the depths and noting the nature of the particles caught in heavy grease that he smeared to the bottom of the sounding weight, which is an interesting way to collect uh, interesting way to collect substrate. He reported the bed material of this river to be mostly, and I quote, sand and fine gravel. Shocker, I know. Now, Oltman and Ames took samples at a few locations in 1963 and 1964 and reported that the bed material in Obidos, Brazil, to be, wait for it again, fine sands with medium diameters ranging from 0.15 to 0.25 millimeters, kind of like the gravel or sand that we would play with. I know this is not some real breakthrough knowledge there, but the point is many of the larger rivers and their tributaries that we obsess over do have these mixed sizes of sand and gravels on the bottom. So why do we just use one size? We should use multiple beds, uh, multiple size beds. Makes sense. There's a lot to the science of naturally graded materials, and you'll have to do some research on the subject. And of course, I'm going to continue to sound in on that over the you know for the coming year. But in the end, science can tell you a lot. However, creativity and your aesthetic tastes are typically the guidelines that you're going to embrace when you assemble your little slice at the bottom. That's the way we work. Now, with this abundance of commercially available substrate materials on the market, it's easier than ever to replicate cool little segments of the environment. Now, take a sort of holistic approach to constructing the substrate of your aquarium. Look at the practical and aesthetic aspects of your materials and how you'd combine the permanent materials, i.e. gravels, sand, pebbles, etc., with the more transient materials, which is what by tentacles and leaves. It's a lot of fun. It's very engaging, and it can almost be like a little hobby within a hobby or an obsession within an obsession in my case, right? And yeah, the transient materials part, of course, as you guessed, is really fascinating to me. Now, in many of the slower moving waters where the sediment sorting has already occurred, you'll find an accumulation of softer, more ephemeral materials like leaves, twigs, seed pods, soil, sediments, uh, etc. over a bed of fine sand. Usually it's a fine whitish sand, like a silica. And sometimes these can be quite deep, these materials. Uh, sometimes a meter or more in areas such as the Pantanal, as related by our friend Ty Streitman, who we've interviewed and discussed this with on this very podcast, he described this decomposing material, which is often terrestrial plant parts and such, and he said it could be extremely deep. What goes on in these deep beds of decomposing botanical material? A lot, I think. It's something that I keep coming back to because the idea of using botanicals in your aquarium for substrate keeps tantalizing me with the performance and potential benefits. As I've obsessively reported to you in the last year, I set up a small tank in my office for the sole purpose of doing damn near the entire substrate with leaves and twigs, sort of like in nature. There was less than approximately 0.25 inches or 0.635 centimeters of sand in there, like very little. I went from throwing in wood to make it look cool to yanking out everything but the leaves and twigs on the bottom, and that was the whole scape. It's what we call in the reef aquarium world a no-scape. Leaves and a shoal of paracaridon simulans, the green neon tetra. Nothing else. That was it. <clears throat> and the interesting thing about this tank was that it was one of the most chemically stable, low-maintenance tanks I've ever worked with. It held a TDS that peaked out at like 12 and a pH of 6.2 pretty much from day one of its operation. It cycled in like four to maybe five to six days, and ammonia was barely detectable during the cycle. Nitrite peaked at like 0.25 milligrams per liter in about three days. I mean fast. Now, the point of the piece is not to drop a big old humble brag about some new tank I started or, you know, I'm this cutting edge dude. The point is to show you what I think is this interesting thing that I noticed about this tank. The takeaways here, stability and ease of function. And I was quite astounded how a new tank could go from dry to broken in in a week or so. And not just broken in, i.e. cycled, mind you. We're talking like stable. 
I don't usually do this, but uh, because it was a sort of a newer idea and I wanted to document it that time, I tested all the basic water parameters, ammonia, nitrite, nitrate, pH, that kind of stuff, for the first three weeks of the tank's existence, just to kind of see what would happen. And quite honestly, not much happened. It stayed bang on stable. The interesting thing about a tank like this is that it relied on leaves in a way I'd rarely done before. Yet, for oddly, I had complete confidence that it could work just fine. And again, I'm not some visionary here. I'm just a guy who's played with enough of this Blackwater botanical style aquarium stuff that can develop a certain degree of confidence and comfort with them. Many of you are in the same place now. We're years into this sort of new evolved, new botanical movement. And I think a lot of us feel the same way. As far as I've determined, what goes on in an aquarium with botanicals or leaves, in this instance, as the total substrate or hardscape, as the case may be, is that they become the basis for biological activity in the tank. As we've discussed like a million times here, as botanicals break down, they recruit bacteria, fungi, and other organisms on their you know, surfaces. What I'm starting to feel more and more confident about is postulating that some degree of denitrification occurs in the system with a layer of leaves and botanicals as a major component of the tank. At the very least, I believe that there's very good nutrient processing that occurs in such a system because of the resident micro and macrofauna present in that botanical bed. Now, I know I have little, you know, rigorous scientific information to back up my theory other than just anecdotal observations and even some assumptions. And again, observations in that I've done this a number of times. However, there's always an example to look at for more information, and that's nature. Now, of course, nature and aquariums differ, one being a closed system and the other one being open. However, they are both beholden to the same laws, aren't they? And I believe that the functions of the captive leaf litter bed and the wild leaf litter beds are remarkably similar to a great extent. The thing that fascinates me is that in nature, leaf litter beds perform a similar function, that is, fostering biodiversity, nutrient export, and yeah, I need denitrification. Let's take a look at some of the information I gleaned from the study of a natural leaf litter bed for some insights here. In a slow-moving wild Amazonian stream with a very deep leaf litter bed, observations were made which are of some interest to us. First off, the oxygen saturation was 6.73 milligrams per liter. That's about 85% of saturation. The conductivity was 13.8 microsimians, and the pH was, wait for it, 3.5. Now, we're probably not going to hit 3.5 in our aquarium, but it's interesting. So, you know, some of these parameters, specifically pHs, are likely very difficult to obtain and maintain in the aquarium, but... The interesting thing is that these parameters were stable through a months-long investigation, just kind of like what we see in our aquariums. Oxygen saturation was surprisingly low given the fact that there was some water movement and the turbulence you know, was present where the study was conducted. And the research postulated that the reduction in oxygen saturation presumably reflects respiratory consumption by the organisms residing in the leaf litter, as well as low photosynthetic generation, which makes some sense because there's no real algae or plant growth in the leaf litter beds, right? And of course, such numbers are consistent with the presence of a lot of life in the leaf litter beds. And microscopic investigation in this study confirmed it. It revealed that the leaf litter was heavily populated with fungi and other microfauna. There was a significant amount of fish life too. Interestingly, the fish population was largely found in the top 12 inches or 30 centimeters of the leaf litter bed, which was estimated in in this area to be about 18 inches or 45 centimeters deep. The food web in this type of habitat is comprised largely of fungal and bacterial growth, which occurs over the decomposing leaf litter. And of course, there's crustaceans and so forth that are attracted to that too. And I know I'm throwing a lot of information out here and doing what I hope is a slightly better than mediocre attempt at trying to tie this all together for you. The principal assertions I'm making are that in the wild, the leaf litter bed is a very productive place and it has a significant impact on its surroundings. 
And it's increasingly obvious to me that many of these same functions occurred in aquarium using leaf litter and botanicals as part of the substrate. I think that it's time that we have hobbyists, as hobbyists, try to devote a lot more time and effort to the idea of alternative substrates, or at the very least, utilizing more than just sand and gravel for our substrates and just calling it a day. There's so much more that we can learn, I think, by incorporating botanical and other materials into our aquarium substrates. It's, it's unbelievable. It's part of the reason why we've offered all these substrate additives in the form of crushed leaf, bark, you know, coconut-based materials, etc., for the last four years here at Tannin. And I'm going to double down on this stuff, sands, botanicals, clays, all the kind of stuff that you need. I think the bottom of our aquariums is so much more than a place to just secure our driftwood or set rocks in place and grow plants. It's an opportunity. It's a place to enhance, augment, or even drive the biological and chemical environment of our aquariums. If we continue to look at the natural aquatic habitats from, you know, from where our fishes come from, there's literally a whole new world of possibilities. And the possibilities to create aesthetically unique, visually compelling, and entirely functional microhabitats within our botanical-style aquariums. There's literally an untapped area in the hobby here, which is screaming at us to do more and to make some discoveries and breakthroughs. Now, with much deference to the planted aquarium crowd, particularly those who play with, you know, dirted substrates, we can build on this work. Of course, we're not talking about using alternative substrates strictly for growing plants, like those cool cats are, you know, that's their thing. No, no, we're talking about utilizing these materials as a more holistic, fish-focused system, centering on replicating the look and function of natural aquatic habitats. We're going to be talking a lot more about this in 2020. We're going to be going, I think... Um, to areas where we're talking about how to incorporate all sorts of materials and ideas into our substrates. And yes, I've, we've talked about the long-awaited urban agapo soils will be coming very soon. Um, it's time for more people to experiment with this stuff, and I've just kind of gotten the manu- manufacturing, if you will, down. It's going to be small batch, artisanal, kind of like everything else we're doing in Tannin this year, just so you know. We're going to always stay, I've decided to, it's crazy, and I'm, I'm, I'm digressing a bit. We're going to always stay small, customer-focused, direct-to-consumer, eccentric, and we're going to do our best to curate, love, and share all that good information with you um, on the level. No matter how busy we get, that's the focus. We're not going to become this big, solid business where it turns into a bunch of commodity stuff where a piece of wood is just a piece of wood. Everything you get will continue to be hand-selected, hand-curated, thought through by people that love this stuff as much as you do. So it's like a comfort I hope you take out of it. And this bit about substrate materials, is, it's an obsession of mine. And I think if I get geeky enough and excited and we show you some more examples, you'll get excited too. So a literal active substrate. And yet that's something that's so fascinating and is beautiful for those of us who give the idea a shot. I really think we're going to do something cool. This is a big aesthetic shift in the hobby, but it goes well beyond that. We're literally going to elevate the substrate from being at the bottom, metaphorically, to being at the top of mind for at least for higher up in our consideration process when we're designing and executing our new botanical style aquariums. The result of this focus, we hope, will be a greater understanding of the form, function, and even the aesthetics that, are, that a substrate can bring to the aquarium. Mental shifts are just the beginning. You've already made that commitment the minute you set up your first tank of decomposing leaves and stuff, right? So yeah, you're in. And we recognize that we're part of a greater whole and that the work we're doing is going to benefit a generation of aquarists who will follow us. We may not have all the answers yet, but they're going to apply what we're learning in ways we probably haven't even contemplated. Thinking about things like botanical-infused substrates is just one way to push the state of the art along. Yeah, it's a hobby evolution from the bottom up, and I'm glad to have you in the mix. Stay excited, stay inspired, stay diligent, stay open-minded, stay hungry for knowledge, and always stay wet. Till next time, this is Scott Fellman. Thanks so much for spending part of your day with me, and I look forward to seeing you on the next installment of The Tin.